So I sometimes teach a class on forgiveness like Maddie um, when I teach at my local communities. And um, I, uh, I don't like the word homework, but sometimes I give homework. <laughs> and I have them write their um, understanding of where their forgiveness practice is in the moment. And so this is one of... Um, those pieces of homework that came back. Forgiveness given and received releases my anger, abates my disappointment, allows me to go forward no longer looking back. Uh, Forgiveness would allow me to accept what is. Alas. Yeah, because we get familiar even with the difficulty. We get familiar with the pain. And sometimes even there's a subtle attachment to what's familiar. And, um, and, and we don't go, don't stretch beyond that into the unfamiliar that actually may provide even freedom from that pain. So it takes courage and effort of which all of you have been exerting and, and um, directing. And so this talk is called The Courage to Live. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says, first, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. They who are devoid of the power to forgive are devoid of the power to love. It takes the courage and the effort. It also takes our mindfulness and loving-kindness practice and our compassion practice. And it's a complex practice because in my own experience, it's a relational practice. It's not not purely an, an individual practice. So it's a personal distinction that I, I make and, and see if it lands for you that I ask you for your forgiveness. I offer you my forgiveness, which is a little bit different than giving you an apology. I apologize. It, that, that sort of is, uh, even though I may be coming from a, a well-intentioned place, it's imposing something on you that you may not be available for. And so this relational aspect is very humbling. And as Maddie beautifully described yesterday, forgiveness is making the distinction between the person who caused the harm and the act of harming. There's a distinction there. It doesn't condone or redeem or pardon or absolve the act of harm. But what's my relationship to the person? Do I 
hold that person as other or objectify that person? Or do I feel their humanity as well in the midst of my difficulty or pain? Again, Dr. King. Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act is no longer a barrier to the relationship of our humanity. The Pali word for forgiveness is kama, K-H-A-M-A, and it literally means the earth. I think I referred to this earlier this weekend. The earth that, 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 is the, it, that is emblematic of the mind and heart that is unshakable in its intention to create non-harm even when we ourselves are challenged with harm. When you forgive me for harming you, you are aware and you have a choice and you choose a path towards less suffering in this life. You choose a path that that is about non-harm. It's about not engaging in this thing that we call retribution. Forgiveness is the invitation to lift ourselves out of that quicksand of resentment, that, that, that never-ending cycle of suffering, of meeting energy with energy. I am so impressed that one of your mentors is Dr. Luskin. Dr. Fred, yes. Because his research has been phenomenal in, in, in documenting how forgiveness is actually a health practice. That nursing a grudge and prolonged anger spikes the heart rate, lowers the immune response, floods the brain with neurotransmitters which impede problem solving and increases depression. That's the aspect of holding on to anger or resentment. Meanwhile, the benefits of forgiveness create fewer health problems, fewer physical symptoms of stress, fewer incidences of illness like cardiovascular disease and cancers. And Luskin writes, when you don't forgive, you release all the chemicals of the stress response. Each time you react, adrenaline, cortisol, and norepinephrine prenephrine, enter the body. When it's a chronic grudge, you can think about it 20 times a day and those chemicals limit creativity. They limit problem solving. Your brain enters what we call the no thinking zone. And over time, they lead you to feel helpless like a victim. When you forgive, you wipe all of that clean. So the sheets that we copied for you to take back and, 
experiment with your at your home practice. Um, many times you will uh, hear the formal practice of forgiveness in three directions, and and for this retreat we've added a fourth. So the first direction, of course, is forgiving ourselves. The second direction is asking for forgiveness for harm that we might have caused. Third direction is to offer forgiveness to people who have harmed us. And through traversing that pain and difficulty, we begin to see the larger view, the larger pattern, which is there's suffering in this world, there's pain, and can we forgive the fourth direction, which is the fact that there's a first noble truth. So I just wanted to go through these four directions for any way that I have caused harm to myself through judgment, action, self-blame, or indifference. May I forgive myself, and if I cannot do so in this moment, may I be able to do so in the future. We are often, I don't have to, this is a no-brainer, we are often our own harshest critic. When we are you know, ill or, or not feeling well, we, we, uh, we still try to be as productive as we were. We power through, we, we, um, we go to work anyway. We, you know, there's a kind of um, uh, demand that we make on ourselves that's not kind. When we have an agitated sitting period, we think that we're somehow doing it wrong. When we're feeling anger or depression, we can get angry at the anger. We can get depressed at the depression. And so all of the instructions are inclining this reconditioning so that when the difficulty comes up, can we not judge the experience? And even if it's judgment that comes up, even if we're blaming ourselves in the moment for being such a lousy meditator or everybody else looks so peaceful and calm, and this mind is, you know, going off into fantasy land, can you not judge the judgment? And in that moment, it feels counterintuitive, but in that moment, you're practicing forgiveness and kindness because you're not fueling the fire. This is a deep invitation, not judging the judgment. So when our life gets hard and difficult, as it does for all of us, this is a way in which our hearts don't have to be changed and our hearts don't become as hard and difficult as the life that we're experiencing. It's a really radical act that we're talking about in terms of forgiveness. 
simply being in the moment, this deep kindness of meeting the moment for what it is, not needing it to be different, and having our life reveal where our next steps are as our compassion guides us into what the appropriate response is. Part of um, uh, this, this realigning of my relationship with judgment came as a monastic because we took five precepts when we created this sacred space. When, um, when you put on robes uh, and you go into the temple, you take on 227 <laughs> precepts. There's no way, in a, even if it's a four-hour ceremony, that you, can, that you can absorb or even comprehend 227 guidelines to follow. And so, really, you're constantly breaking precepts. It's, very, it's a very interesting experience. So, you know, you know, you're walking in these robes that feel like, you know, you're stepping into a piece of origami because they have to be aligned in a certain way. And I'm standing there, and somebody, another monastic, um, will just come up and rearrange. <laughs> you know, just like, oh, no, it should look like this. <laughs> Or, no, you tied this really incorrectly. You know, and, it re- and there was no judgment. I was judging myself. But the, but the, you know, how I was taken care of, you remember, I don't know if your, your parents did this, but, you know, when they would uh, just prevent you from leaving the house, oh, no, you know, you just, you know, the lapel, or, and then, you know, they, 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 like, touch you under your head, and that's what it felt like. You know, this really kind response to maybe a mistake. And it just realigned, it began to, to give me a, a different experience of my own judgment. Part of this, um, part of what supports forgiving ourselves, not judging ourselves, is recognizing our own merit. That's the classic phrase. But it's being in touch with your inherent worthiness in this planet. This is the wisdom of Margaret Cho. (laughs) And I'm serious. She's not, but I am. If you are a woman, if you are a person of color, if you are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, if you are a person of size, if you are a person of intelligence, if you are a person of integrity, then you are considered a minority in this world. It's going to be really hard to find messages of self-love and support anywhere, especially in the women's and gay men's culture. It's all about you have to look a certain way or else you're worthless. You know, when you look in the mirror and you think, ugh, I'm so fat, I'm so old, I'm so ugly. Don't you know that that, that's not your authentic self? 
but that's billions upon billions of dollars of advertising and magazines and billboards and movies all geared to make you feel shitty about yourself so that you will take your hard-earned money and spend it on some turn-around cream that turn around cream that doesn't turn around crap. <laughs> when you don't have self-esteem, you will hesitate before you do anything in your life. You will hesitate to go for the job you really want. You will hesitate to ask for a raise. You will hesitate to defend yourself when you are discriminated against because of your race, sexuality, size, gender. You will hesitate to vote. You will hesitate to dream. For us to have self-esteem is truly an act of revolution. To be intimately tied with your self-worth is radically transformative. Feeling your worthiness, that self-esteem is not self-attachment. Noticing the goodness in your life, the goodness you've done for others, the goodness that you've done for yourself, and letting that that goodness be the foundation from which you move in the world. You are invited not to second-guess yourself, not to second-guess your life, the reason you're here. Who would we be? What would we do if we were not separated from our, from our own goodness and wholesomeness and worthwhileness. That natural ability for this heart to be open and kind. I have too many stories in this talk. I don't know which ones to use. So many of you know Greg Louganis. He um, was an Olympic champion um, in the late 80s. And he writes this, he wrote this piece in Huffington Post not too long ago, within the last 18 months. And it speaks to having this self-worthiness despite any adversity. I want to thank all the bullies in my life. The ones who called me retard, sissy boy, faggot. Those who threatened to throw punches at me and took my lunch money at the bus stop and those who actually threw punches at me. My dad who whipped me with his belt until I did a dive that I was so scared to do in my regular practice. And the man who raped me at knife point whom I stayed with for another six years. They all helped shape me, and without those experiences, I could not be the person I am today. I had to learn to forgive myself and then find it in my heart to forgive them. Even bless the light in them, no matter how dim that light was. In the 1988 Olympic Games in Seoul, South Korea, on my ninth dive in the men's three-meter springboard preliminaries, I struck my head on the board. 
Going into that Olympic event, I was the favorite to win the gold. But in that split second, I became the underdog. I was scared. Having been diagnosed as HIV positive six months prior, I was aware I was in a country that would have deported me if my status were known. It was what followed that made me realize the strength and power I had within me. I firmly believe you do not achieve greatness on your own. I drew inspiration from my coach and from an Indiana boy, Ryan White, a friend who suffered from hemophilia and contracted HIV from his clotting factor. He went on to become a national spokesperson for people with HIV, working tirelessly before his 1990 AIDS-related death to make us visible and get increased government funding. He was a fighter. And in that moment, I needed to find that fighter in me. I set the board and my dive was announced and I heard an audible gasp from the audience. It was the similar dive to which I had struck my head, a reverse one and a half with a three and a half twist. Only 22 minutes passed between the moment I struck my head on the board and the execution of that dive. I took a breath, went forward, trusting my training, my coach, and a young boy in Indiana. I did that dive, and as it turned out, it was the highest scoring dive of the Olympic Games. I went on to repeat that dive during the finals and took home the gold. I never would have had that kind of strength and fortitude to to succeed without my life's experiences, and I mostly attribute my strength in that moment to my tormentors. But it is only after I stopped playing the victim role and I truly began living a life of freedom. I found the will to learn and follow the path that I was put on this earth to follow. The experiences in which I felt less than were gems in my life because I more than survived. Each of us has a hero inside of us and a uniqueness that we may not see at first because we're so concerned with fitting in. We may have a different walk or a talk or a different way of learning, a different physical appearance that doesn't match others' expectations, or a different way of expressing ourselves. In time, in my own experience, I I learned to celebrate my uniqueness and cherish who I am as a human being and act out of love and compassion for my fellow humans. And so to borrow my mom's saying, I make everywhere I go better because I was there. We talk about wise speech a lot in, in Buddhist practice. It's one of the eightfold path. And the most important things we can say in the world are what we say to ourselves. I make everywhere I go better because I was there. The Buddha said this birth in this human life is so incredibly precious because we have the possibility of awakening, of freedom. There is this metaphorical image that it is so rare to be born as a human being. It's as rare as this giant sea tortoise um, swimming in, in an infinite expanse of ocean. 
And once every hundred years, this, tor- this giant tortoise comes up for a breath of air. And the chances of being born a human being are the chances of this tortoise um, poking its head through a wooden ring that's floating in this immense ocean. That's the percentage chance. So the Buddha didn't say that happy people are more precious than people who are depressed. He didn't say that one gender expression is more precious than another. He didn't say that people who have more power are more precious than people who have less. He doesn't say that people of one culture are more precious than a people of another. He doesn't say that less angry people are more precious than people who are more angry. He simply said that being born as a human is so very valuable. We all have that capacity to touch into our inherent worthiness, worthiness this, this capacity to forgive ourselves and be solid in our reason for living in this life. As we turn the direction of forgiveness towards asking for forgiveness of those who ha- we have, might have harmed, for any way that I have caused harm to you, knowingly or unknowingly, in thought, word, or deed, I ask for your forgiveness. In acknowledging my own imperfections, our own humanity, we let go of the perfection we wish to be. We, we walk intentionally into the landscape of what Maddie was talking about, this noble vulnerability. Sometimes this can be described as humility, which doesn't have a very sexy vibe in this culture, but actually in other cultures is a very highly prized value. This ability to just be, it's not, it's not giving up power. It's, be, it's just being in awe of the power of this life, that we are humble. I teach with Sylvia Borstein at Spirit Rock a lot, and she talks about vulnerability in, in you know, um, because some of, sometimes the response can be, I just feel so vulnerable, I just feel too vulnerable. And her response to that is, what if all of us were to feel too vulnerable? What kind of world would that be like? We all have received injuries. We've all caused injuries. And we can remember, we can learn from our own experience. This is is another aspect of mindfulness that we learn from our own experience, the impact of our actions. One of the universal teachings that parents give to children, and I heard it over and over again, is, How would you feel if that happened to you? And that's the the compassionate awareness that 
all parents, all of us actually deeply know. In the Satipatthana Sutta, it's articulated as a practice of internal and external awareness. So the passage reads, the noble ones abide contemplating internally, they abide contemplating externally, they abide contemplating both internally and externally. That we explore deeply our own experience so that we can feel the empathy or the compassion for others and we gauge what our impact is and we can feel when we've harmed someone else. We can feel that and we ask for their forgiveness. We lead from this place of our hearts. I had a close friend for over a decade and I had one of these falling outs in which I had no idea why there was a falling out. You know, there was, I mean, we had moved away from each other, but I had still, you know, I still loved this friend dearly and um, I would call and we would just not have the same conversations. There was just some distance and... um, and, you know, I sensed that, that something had happened. I had possibly done something or said something, but I didn't know. And I, so I couldn't, it, it was hard for me to ask for forgiveness because um, I didn't know if I was crossing a boundary by, by bringing up something that, that he clearly didn't want to talk about. And so what I had found myself doing was living the ask you know, not, not feeding the same energy by, well, if you don't like me, I'm not going to like you. Or if you don't call me, I'm not going to call you. I had to live from, from my experience of the relationship, which was really a loving connection. And so, so that's where I stayed connected with him and still continue to do, even though I don't necessarily get the response that I would like. But again, our life is not about like. (laughs) It's about love. But love is not about like. the awareness of suffering, the awareness of the first noble truth invites us, invites us into feeling, God, there is so much in the world, I do not want to add one more drop. What, what choice point can I make so that I don't add one more drop of difficulty or harm in this world? and turning towards the third direction. For any way that you have caused harm to me, knowingly or unknowingly, may I forgive you. And if I cannot do so in this moment, may I be able to do so in the future. Noticing where the forgiveness is not yet possible, but maintaining the intention to forgive. I was um, uh, in Northern California 
along the north coast in Eureka and I was walking around and there are a lot of artists that live and they had a local art show. And um, the art show was called Compassion in Contemporary Art. And so it really drew my attention. So I walked through and there was this one painting that was called The Moment Before Forgiveness. The moment before forgiveness. Number one, there was an artist that had this creativity to, to recognize that this is an important moment. The moment that you sense that you're not forgiving, that you, that you haven't forgiven, is the beginning of the practice. <coughs> because the moment before forgiveness, we have a choice point. Our awareness is right there. We have a choice. Do we create more suffering or more freedom? That is always the beauty and the power of our awareness practice, that we can't change anything we're not aware of. And again, as Maddie said, we're really repeating each other. We're trying to make it interesting. But repetition is how we learn over and over again. You know, the multiplication tables, the, the alphabet, it's repetition. The repetition is not bad. The monotony is not bad. There's a higher purpose. See the larger picture. When you're bored, you are still working it. Anyway, Maddie said that <laughs> that it's not about our liberation. It's not about fixing the other person. So again, from this forgiveness class, we don't have time for you to write, so you're lucky. <laughs> 21 years ago, I was denied a new position, not because I wasn't qualified, but because but because my boss had decided to open the position to new college graduates, which meant that I was expected to train another person for this position that I wanted. Five years, five years later, I got the position because the management changed, but I spent hours dreaming of revenge. I let go of revenge and moved on to holding a grudge. <laughs> I was lucky. He worked across the country so I didn't have to see him often because I had a hard time being civil for the rest of the time I worked there, another six years. I let it go at that point, released the pain, (laughs) but still dreamed about it. Now, 21 years later, I still have not forgiven him. I doubt he has even thought about it after the first six months. Mm. Saying you forgive someone else can help them if they're feeling guilt over a past action. However, it is more likely to help you release the revenge and pain to free up your psychic energy for other, more productive things. My guess is that I've spent over 2,000 hours over the years on this issue. It takes courage. It took courage for this person to be, not to write it, 
to be that honest with her own experience to herself. But to give ourselves the space and the break that this is the, the pattern that we have been acculturated to. This, this, cult, this, this pattern of meeting energy with energy and anger with anger. I was, um, on our first trip to um, Europe, we stopped in Paris at the Louvre and I saw the, um, the stele from Hammurabi that uh, uh, is incised in it his legal code, which carries into our legal system today, which says, if a man put out the eye of another man, his eye shall be put out. If he breaks another man's bone, his bone shall be broken. This is 4,000 years of conditioning that we are realigning. And that is deep. And what are some tools to help us realign that? That, that to, to, to incline ourselves so that we're not inclined to the revenge or the retribution or the rage. There is this practice that is so transformative, which is the second foundation of mindfulness. It's called Vedana. It's simply noticing the truth that in any arising of any experience, there are only three things that, 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 that it can be reduced to three experiences. Either it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it sounds, again, sounds mechanical, mundane, just to notice the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral aspects of your experience. But guess what? when you're aware of the pleasant, you don't have to respond to that impulse. You don't have to want more of it, which is what we usually do. When you come against an unpleasant sensation, you don't have to push it away, which is what we usually do. And when you explore the complicated experience of anger, and notice like the physical sensations, the, the vibration, the heat, the unpleasantness. Oh, there's a pleasant sensation. What's that about? Oh, there's an, there's an aspect of anger that's really pleasant. And what happens when the unconscious mind meets a pleasant experience? We want more of it. So if we're not mindful, we actually start feeding the anger really easily. And it cascades into something that we call (laughs) self-righteousness. And that righteousness feels really good. So we want more of it. This practice of noticing pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral dissolves that conditioning. And we begin, as we have offered to you, this practice incrementally that, um, that we don't start with the most difficult person. That's actually not compassionate. 
to be kind to the kindness practice itself. And as I was saying, that we learn through the repetition, through the, the repeated coming back to the, the, um, the person, the phrases, just like coming back to the breath when we get pulled away. This learning is so important. My, my, um, before he passed, my dad um, uh, was at a gathering of one of my cousin's 70th birthday and, and um, my cousin's sister um, was just borderlining, um, uh, bordering on uh, losing some of her cognitive capabilities. And um, my father was 93 at the time, so, you know, he was in his own state of mind and kind of cranky, you know, like at 93. I don't blame him for feeling uncomfortable every single moment. Um, and he couldn't tolerate this loss of cognitive functioning in, in my cousin Grace. And he said, I do not want to see her again. Do not invite her to your mother's birthday, which was in September. Do not, you know, um, have her there. And I said, okay, you know, whatever you want. And um, so when it came time in September, um, he gave me a list of everybody to invite, and Grace was on it. And I said, what's going on here? I thought you said you told me not to invite her. And uh, he, said, he turned to me and said, what can I do? I'm so old, I have to let go. Don't wait till... I'm letting go of everything. Don't wait till you're 93 to learn this. It is an opportunity to learn because, you know, and, and I don't want to get too distracted, but, but this letting go process, this forgiving process is really the preparation for the big let go that all of us will get to. So that's another Dharma talk. If we do, if you come to the week long... So in my own, so as I was exploring forgiveness as a Dharma practice, with it, I'm going over time, sorry. Um, as, you know, in, in Buddhist psychology, there are these 52 mind states. And again, these are theoretical frameworks. The, tech, the, the, the technical aspect is not so important um, But there are these 52 mind states, and 25 of them are beautiful, meaning beautiful is defined as what leads to freedom, what leads to the beautiful mind and heart. So that's the traditional um, terminology. I looked at them. For me, forgiveness requires all of them, (laughs) not just a few which are faith, generosity, mindfulness, letting go, loving kindness, hesitation and fear of doing harm, balance of mind, tranquility, spaciousness, flexibility, adaptability, integrity, wise speech, wise action, appreciative joy, compassion, non-delusion. Wow. 
That's a lot. (laughs) But this is what Greta Crosby says. She's a Unitarian minister. Forgiveness is one word, but not one act alone. Forgiveness is the process we live through in order to restore a relationship. Forgiveness is the process of coming back together again with another or with oneself after a separation based on wrongdoing or grievous shortcoming. Forgiving is not forgetting. Forgiving is anchoring a wrong in its own time, letting it recede into the past as we live in the present and move towards the future. Living in the present and moving into the future is moving into the reality of the first noble truth, which is the fourth direction of letting go and forgiveness. May I allow the first noble truth to be a part of life. Bringing the transformation of loving kindness and forgiveness into our experience with the pain in the world, whether it's illness or dying, violence, tragedy, oppression, racism, abuse, Of course, we would not design the world the way it is. Of course, we would like the world to be different. And yet, it is what it is in this moment. I have this story that I've written about and told, but it really, for me, is is the first time I really like put it together in, in um, my own, own experience of suffering that um, I was on my way to dinner and I needed to stop at the ATM near where I live. And I was a little anxious about being late and, and um, I was just, you know, how you tap your feet waiting, you know, because there was a line and impatience arising or arising. And, and uh, I got to the, um, the ATM, the front of the ATM, and somebody had um, scrawled this hate graffiti. You know, um, it went Chinese garbage, Chinese trash, Chinese, it went, the expletives went. And this is in an Asian neighborhood in San Francisco. And I stopped. I could feel the, um, I could feel the paralysis of the trauma because it triggered all those past um, harms, injuries, whether it was, you know, in my childhood, my adolescence, um, and I could feel this vibration of rage and, and wanting the moment to be other than it is. Like, why me? And I decided in that moment to just stay, just, you know, I'm standing on the intersection, and just staying with these cascading sensations. And as I was taking the intersection in, you know, I was seeing these, um, these old Asian couples and I saw my parents, and I, my heart broke 
in terms of how they were experiencing, you know, they might have experienced this, this, this graffiti. And then I saw young couples, um, and I and I felt the that they were my siblings, my brothers and my sisters, and my heart broke again. And and as my heart continually opened, I remember the moment this happened, I saw the perpetrator. And I saw how wounded he or she must have been in order to create this. It didn't prevent me from what I needed to do. So I, you know, contacted the Asian Law Caucus, I went to the bank. But I did it with this spaciousness of, of not being caught in the injury. And it fell away. It didn't re-traumatize, it didn't re-trigger. In fact is, it actually healed. Because I could be present for that in a way that when I was 13 or 14 or growing up, I didn't have the skills. And it realigned all of that experience. In the Dhammapada it says, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of what is in between, transcending the things of time. When your mind is free in every direction, you will not return to birth and aging. And that's the metaphor for freedom. Getting out of the way of our life, getting our minds out of the way of our life and letting the life be lived. This path is often called the purification of the heart. The difficulties that we go through, the struggles, the, the, uh, the dark nights of the soul that we experience. And yet, there's a freedom if we're able to um, just be with the experience moment to moment. This purification of the heart, we don't have a choice of what we purify. What needs purification shows up, it emerges. And sometimes this internalized suffering goes deep to the core of who we think we are. But who we really are is so much vaster, so much broader than who we think we are. I was teaching at IMCW in Washington, D.C., the Insight community that some of you are part of. And I received a note from one of the community members from a mother who um, lost her um, son. And, um, and that is always unjust, you know, to... 
to have your son predecease a parent. Everyone suffers, I see that. And yet, losing a child unexpectedly after having spent the better part of this life trying to be a good parent brought me to my knees in realizing how important these teachings really are to living one precious moment at a time. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. If you find the Dharma in my son's words and would like to share them, I would consider it a blessing, an honor, a tribute to this short yet beautiful life this young man lived. And there is Dharma. He writes before he passed. We can let go of self-pity and bathe in the belief that nothing is possible with the help of a well-exercised imagination. We can let go of all the what-ifs and why-me's and nobody knows of our constitutions and accept the fact that, like it or not, we are alive, we are breathing, we are moving, and reverent or not, we must accept the beauty of it. Life, in any measure, is beautiful. The fourth direction of forgiveness invites us into how impersonal the first noble truth is. The first directions are really about relationships, whether I've harmed myself, harmed you. The fourth direction really invites us into the teaching of of the non-personal aspect of suffering. That even if we look at the traumatization or the tragedies that are occurring today to groups of people, there have been cycles of this over and over again in our humanity. This is not personal. And yet, the power of these teachings is that we raise ourselves out of the collective unconsciousness that Jung talks about and begin to create a collective consciousness that transforms and can be called this civilizing force, raising our humanity to higher and higher potentials. When our awareness and kindness and compassion is practice, we not only change our lives or our relationships to the world, we begin to change the world itself. One last story. In 1995, conservationists were about to close on a 10,000-acre ranch in eastern Oregon and convey it to the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management. Six weeks before the closing project, before the closing, the project manager for the Trust of Public Land got a call from Jamie Pinkham, a member of the Nez Perce Nation. Jamie relates that this piece of property contained the cave in which their ancestral leader, Chief Joseph, was born. At the end of the last great war between the U.S. cavalry and an Indian nation, Chief Joseph had made his famous statement, Hear me, my chiefs, 
I am tired. My sick, my heart is sick and sad. From where the sun now stands, I will fight no more. The Nez Perce had little money, but a whole lot of history and connection to the landscape, and the conversation changed both men. However, that personal transformation was insufficient to heal what occurred to an Indian nation over generations of oppression. So they started two years of complex negotiations which triggered impacts across many communities in the area. One can quickly imagine the value of this effort to the Nez Perce people, but what did it ask of the white ranchers who had come to dominate this land since the time before the Indian Wars? For a people who were forcibly removed from their land five generations ago, becoming a good neighbor required incredible acts of forgiveness and compassion. The return of the Nez Perce to their precious lands proved transformational for others. From that forgiveness, the largely white community of Enterprise, Oregon, felt the same lessons and started thinking and acting differently. The community had become deeply divided over the appropriateness of the high school mascot called the Savage. Armed guards were required at the Board of Education meetings. But in the end, it was the vote of the students that prevailed. And the community began to sandblast off the Indian symbol from the school's walls. In June of 1997, the Trust for Public Land was able to convey to the Nez Perce Nation 10,300 acres in the heart of their ancestral homeland of Northeast Oregon. It was 120 years after Chief Joseph and his people were driven from their lands in 1877. Three years later, the Nez Perce had entered into a remarkable partnership with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and Cattlemen's Association to reintroduce the wolf. Three years after that came the most amazing change of all, their ability to deal morally and practically with one of the most difficult issues of the West, which continues, and that's the control of water. The Nez Perce joined the white ranchers and irrigators to voluntarily reduce the amount of water flowing to the ranches so that salmon, could be restored to the local rivers, an initiative that shares the control of the river and makes partners with the salmon. There is deep pain in this world, and there can be deep healing beyond even what we think might be possible. Healing not just our personal relationships, not just our cultural relationships, but with the animal kingdom and the wholeness of life, connecting us to that universal family. This is the teaching of interconnection. The suffering of wanting things to be other than they are asks, why me? Why do I have this pain, this life? 
the heartfulness of forgiveness asks, who else? (laughs) Who else can live this one beautiful, maybe painful, but precious life that has been given to us, navigating all of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows? I would not be the person I am today without all of the injuries and difficulties in my life. You would not be here today if you did not go through every single joy and sorrow you have experienced. And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of whatever we've witnessed or traversed, all of that suffering in the midst of adversity, we have created and continue to create these beautiful lives. The young man who passed away said, we must accept the beauty of it. This beauty in the midst of adversity is by another name called freedom. Each time we practice this awareness and kindness, we're transforming our world, but we're transforming the world. It is not just about our personal practice or salvation. It is about our collective movement into the experience of freedom. Our practice is not some postponement into some unknown future of our liberation. We are creating these moments of beauty and freedom in this moment for ourselves, the world, and the world's yet to be. This is the great journey of our path. And the Buddha said he wouldn't teach anything we couldn't do. And that freedom is possible.